Welcome to Voices United, a congregational song podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Brody, and today we continue with part two of an interview with renowned hymn writer and retired bishop in the Church of England, Timothy Dudley Smith. The first part of the interview can be found in episode two. Timothy and I met in January 2018 at his home in Salisbury, England. What process do you follow when writing hymns? Do you have a set process or a set time of day that you write hymns? Well, I used to have. When I was in in office, we were fortunate enough to have a little house in Cornwall, a very ordinary little house, which uh, I bought in the 1960s when my mother died and left some money. I think we paid £3,000 for it, (laughs) which sounds ridiculous by today's values. And so we... For nearly 20 years, we had a summer holiday there with the family every August. And because we didn't have to pay rent for it, we could stay a little longer. And so I used to write my hymns there. Mm. Through the year, I would keep a page in my notebook, which I called starting points, so that when we arrived down in Cornwall, I would have the seed from Mm. which Mm. I hoped a hymn would grow. Mm. And starting on the first morning, really, I would take my dear wife breakfast in bed, which she always quite liked. The children would have a bit of a lie-in. I would have a solitary breakfast and would work at hymns, perhaps till about 11 o'clock when we'd be ready to go to the beach. And do this through uh, throughout our holiday. And the glorious thing was that there was always tomorrow. Mm. At home, if you've snatched an hour or two to work on a hymn, you're conscious as the clock moves on that you've got to do something else. There, I could be quite content if I had really not apparently achieved anything in my two hours in the morning Mm. because there was always tomorrow. And uh, a saying of Robert Frost's, your poet, became a kind of talisman to me. He said, there are days you can, and there are days you can't, and they are both preparation for the days you can. And it rings absolutely true to my experience. Mm. So I used to come back from our summer holiday with perhaps six texts in draft. Mm. And uh, they would be polished, as polished as I could get them. I would have time at the end of the holiday to go over them. I would then send them off to Derek Kidner, who was a theological educator, a concert pianist, a stylist, and who, slightly to my surprise, because I didn't know him well, had kindly agreed that I could send him them year by year, and he would suggest a tune. And as we got to know each other better, I would ask him to comment on all sorts of aspects. Is line five consistent with a biblical theology? Is the grammar in line six too convoluted? And so on. Mm. Uh, And I have upstairs on file still his marvellous replies to these questions. Mm. And I often said he gave me confidence that I was going in the right direction. Mm. So that was then. But after I retired, of course, I 
was then able to set aside time more easily. Mm. And I tend now to write in my study upstairs, though I have written in other places. And uh, in fits and starts. I think my experience in writing hymn tunes uh, seem, seems to, to be in the same vein as, as what you've described in that when... I often find that when our university semester is finished, that there are ideas that have sort of been planted that what I find is when there's there's space for things to happen. That's right. And you need what C.J. Lewis calls in one of his essays a donnée, hmm. a given as a starting point or a seed, I called it just now. Yeah, yeah. And... Uh, uh, that was where the page in my notebook would come in. Mm. It could be as little as a single word. It could even be a tune, as I became slightly more familiar with music and would take down a cassette recorder with tunes on it. Mm. It could be somebody else's verse, Walter de la Mer, for example. In the notes to my texts in my collections, I mention Walter de la Mer's poems as providing a model sometimes. Mm. Perhaps more an inspiration than a model, though both. Mm. But given a starting point. Yeah. And then perhaps you would get a first line. And if I got a first line, that considerably limits the possible meters. Mm. And then if I got a first verse and had some idea of where it was going, what the other verses were going to say, then I became fairly confident I could go on and finish. <laughs> Do you have many um, many unfinished hymns? Uh, no. Not many, yeah. No, some, but not many. Yeah, yeah. And uh, there's one example of two verses of a hymn that I wrote as a poem in the 1940s and then came across after I had begun to see myself as a hymn writer and added a final verse I forget when but I'm probably in the 1980s I should mm. think uh. huh. <laughs> and this is not this is this is not unusual I find reading biographies of the poets mm -hmm. that something lies on their desk for years mm -hmm. and they are then able to take it up and finish it yeah oh, that's great what do you see as the role of hymns or maybe more broadly, of congregational singing in worship? I think we've got to start <clears throat> by saying it's a means that God has given us to worship him and that anything that, seek, that displaces worship from its first position in the singing of a hymn, in other words, if uh, people choose a hymn for any other reason, I think that is not proper. Mm. I mean, the classic example is in uh, in period peace, the story of a Cambridge childhood, where the writer Gwen Reverett describes how before an important hockey match, they would have at prayers the night before onward Christian soldiers yeah. as a means of pepping them all up <laughs> to play hockey and win their match the next. <laughs> that is not what a hymn is for. Yeah. It's for the worship of God. But having said that, there then follow from it other benefits. <laughs> so that there is the benefit of a teaching element. 
there is the benefit of allowing people to express a faith that perhaps they're too shy to express mm. in other contexts. Mm. And then there is the community element that binds together the church as the family of God. Mm. Uh, there used to be, a, I think it was the Roman Catholics who coined the saying, the family that prays together stays together. Mm. And I say the family that sings together clings together. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> and I think it's perfectly true that there's a, there's a strong unifying element mm. in singing together. Mm. I'm struck by one of the things that I've noticed, I think, in my own life and within my congregation and with my family is that the hymns we sing, one thing that happens is, is they give us a vocabulary. Uh, they develop in us a vocabulary for expressing our faith that and maybe even a, a, a more more nuanced way of of describing our faith and and speaking to God and about God. And if this is true of us, who have had some theological training, how much more of the person in the pew who has not, yeah. and who, as you rightly say, partly because hymns are so memorable, that the furniture of their soul includes the hymnody that they remember hmm. which is one reason why it is so, so supremely important that hymnody should be true to scripture hmm. and should not stray into realms of fairy or even heresy hmm. Hmm. that's that's great what today is most encouraging to you in the landscape of congregational singing and worship? Well, I think there are all kinds of encouragements. The fact that there is so much of it is perhaps mm. the biggest single mm. issue, and there is a great deal of it. For a lecture I had to give, I attempted some calculations based on three hymns in a service, two services a day, in a Sunday in churches and then a midweek meeting and then school assemblies. Uh, I arrived at an astonishing figure, which was, of course, very ballpark, but even so, quite astonishing of the number of hymns that are sung during the year mm. by Christian people. So I think sheer quantity. Mm. I think that um, alongside the <coughs> rough calculation of the amount of actual hymn singing that takes place, uh, <clears throat> one can look at the continued publication of the printed hymn book, mm. which we see in your country as well as ours. The English hymnal are due to produce a new edition next year. Ancient and Modern produced a new edition a couple of years ago, and, of course, various others. So that print is still very much a factor. Mm. I got a big hand talking at uh, a gathering on hymns somewhere in America when I told them that one of the things I liked about having the hymn in print was that it gave you something to do with your hands other than wave them in the air. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, I, I, I mean, it is encouraging hmm. that so much hymnody is now available on screen, hmm. though I think there are grave limitations about singing hymns only from the screen yeah, yeah. because you don't ever see the hymn in full. Mm. You've nothing to take home. Yeah. You 
don't know what you've just sung or how many more verses. <laughs> I tell the story, and your people could cut it out of the tape, <laughs> of how I attended with my family a church on holiday. <clears throat> and the youth leader, I think, was leading the service and welcomed us all very nicely. <laughs> said, we're now going to have on the screen something that will help you to feel at home and get to know. So up on the screen came the first words, give a little nod to the head beside you, <laughs> give a little nod, give a little nod. So I turned to my wife and we gave each other a grin and a little nod. <laughs> Put a little hand on the arm beside you. Put a little hand, put a little hand. So we did that. <laughs> put a little hand on the knee beside you. I began to be grateful. I was sitting between my wife and my daughter. And, of course, we had no idea what we were going to ask to do next. <laughs> so uh, while I'm sure there are vibrant, well, I know from uh, that there are vibrant churches that do just sing from the screen, on the whole, they don't sing real hymns. Mm. Mm. They sing more a chorus type of worship song that the congregation soon know by heart and don't really need it on the screen. Mm. And it's lovely if people do know words by heart. So I think there's, there's a lot of activity going on, which is very encouraging. The hymn shows no signs of dying. Mm. Mm. Seems like maybe back in the 19... 60s, early 60s, Eric Routley, I think it was, referred to that era as the hymn explosion. That's right. And it seems to me that hasn't really ever ended, that that has, no. it continues on. We, I think we, it is settling down a little now. Mm. And sadly, I was only thinking this morning, some of the real pioneers of it have gone to glory under singing with the saints. Um, Fred Kahn. Yeah. Fred Brad Green, Michael Perry, quite a lot of others. Mm. I think the the hymn explosion that you mentioned, I think we are living in the aftermath of mm. it. Mm. And um, it's not unprecedented. The same kind of thing has happened in history before. And when it dies down, it leaves a legacy mm. which will then be winnowed by time. Yeah. And most of it will pass into limbo, hmm. and some, please God, may remain. Hmm. Hmm. What do you see today in the landscape of congregational singing that, that most concerns you? I think, um, I think it is to do with the prevalence of the worship song, <laughs> and that is really on three counts. The first is that we did import, I think, from America, quite a lot of rubbish mm. in the early days. Mm -hmm. But fortunately, that is, that is dying out. Mm. And indeed, I sometimes say that as the worship song grows up and matures, it becomes more like what we've always thought of as a hymn. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So that we have something like, be still for the presence of the Lord, mm. which would have fallen into the worship song category perhaps when it was first written, but it's now an established part of him today, like there are other examples, some of Graham Kendrick's work. Yeah, yeah. So that is good. I think that there are times when mood changing, which is said to be one of the strengths of the worship song, 
tips over into manipulation. Mm. Mm. And when performance mm. begins to take the place of participation, mm. Mm. I do dislike it when hymns are applauded because a music group or sometimes an individual worship leader has given a lovely rendition. Yeah. But it's to the glory of God. In a concert, by all means applaud because the gifts are God given. Mm. But I don't really think in worship, unless it's children, I'm, mm. th that um, we should be applauding. Mm. So I, I do. But, but beyond those concerns is Gresham's law, which I don't understand in economics, but which I know says that bad money drives out good. Mm. And I... I'm sorry that there are congregations that no longer use our heritage of hymnody mm. because they are so taken up with their synthesizers and, and their um, drum kits mm. and the rest of it that they deny their congregation the opportunity to learn what has proved to be of lasting value mm. Whereas we can't tell what today would have any lasting value. Yeah, yeah. If in a hundred years, only one hymn of yours was to be found in the congregational song repertoire, which one would you like it to be? I have a feeling I gave a little hope to this. I think it would be my version of Psalm 8, The Stars Declare His Glory. Mm -hmm. Shall I read it to you and you can pick Please. out any bits you want? <laughs> Please do. But it's a bit like saying with all these things, uh, you know, which is your favourite food? <laughs> yes. It which is your favourite child? <laughs> yeah, it depends what time of day and uh, <laughs> whether you're having breakfast or not and, uh, and, and changes from week to week. Yes. <laughs> but certainly Psalm 19, I'm sorry, not Psalm 8, but I was pleased with this when God gave it to me though I very seldom heard it sung. It goes, The stars declare his glory, the vault of heaven springs, mute witness of the master's hand in all created things, and through the silences of space their soundless music sings. The dawn returns in splendour, the heavens burn and blaze, the rising sun renews the race that measures all our days and writes in fire across the skies God's majesty and praise. So shine the Lord's commandments to make the simple wise, more sweet than honey to the taste, more rich than any prize, a law of love within our hearts, a light before our eyes. So order to this life of mine, direct it all my days. The meditations of my heart be innocence and praise, my rock and my redeeming Lord in all my words and ways. But I don't know that that's, I mean, I think it's highly unlikely that that's not sung much today. I don't mm. see it being sung in a hundred years' time. <laughs> well, you never know. You never know. You don't. <laughs> you don't. It's absolutely true. I remember writing Lord for the Years, which you may know, mm -hmm. on a train because I 
was a commission from the script union at a time when I was peculiarly busy. Mm. And there is something about being in the capsule of a train when you haven't got a telephone. And <laughs> uh, so I wrote most, if not all of it, on a journey. Mm. Uh, and they sang it at their centenary, but they didn't put it in the hymn book they published. Uh. Uh -huh. Though the editor has since apologised to me and says she knows she should have done. But that's been wise after the event. Mm. But I had, I think none of us had any idea then that it would actually strike a chord uh -huh. in the way that it has done. Uh -huh. Being sung at the Queen's 90th birthday in St Paul's Cathedral, uh -huh. this kind of thing. Uh -huh. Yes. Uh -huh. Oh, that's great. Would you be willing to read Tell Out My Soul? Yes. I don't know how that will fit in here, but I think that's, oh, I get it, it would be great to and make sure I get it right. <laughs> Based on the New English Bible translation of the Magnificat, Luke 1, 46 to 55. Tell out, my soul, the greatness of the Lord. Unnumbered blessings, give my spirit voice. Tender to me the promise of his word. In God, my Saviour, shall my heart rejoice. Tell out my soul the greatness of his name. Make known his might, the deeds his arm has done. His mercy sure from age to age the same. His holy name, the Lord, the mighty one. Tell out my soul the greatness of his might. Powers and dominions lay their glory by. Proud hearts and stubborn wills are put to flight, the hungry fed, the humble lifted high. Tell out, my soul, the glories of his word. Firm is his promise and his mercy sure. Tell out, my soul, the greatness of the Lord to children's children and forevermore. When I was allowed to baptise my first grandchild, his dad was vicar of the parish. They chose that hymn to come in the service, and the line to children's children took on, of course, a special meaning that I had never thought of until then. Mm. What a wonderful memory to it have attached lovely, lovely to that. memory to have, yes. Oh, As against the order of service for a wedding that somebody sent me, which included that hymn. And at the bottom, they put my name, Timothy Dudley Smith, 1839 to <laughs> 1910, something like that. <laughs> uh, they got my dates mixed with greater excellence. Oh, yes. The tune. <laughs> so that would be safely dispatched for me. I want to thank you for spending this time together. Oh, it's lovely. You, you made the journey. It's very nice to see you. Voices United, a Congregational Song podcast, is produced by Benjamin Brody, with support from the Hymn Society in the United States and Canada, and Whitworth University. Special thanks to the Center for Congregational Song for publicity and technical expertise, and Whitworth University alum Lane King for editing and production. <laughs>